The following is a production of the Truth Exchange podcast and is made possible through the financial contributions of listeners and friends like you. If you'd like more information about this series, The State of Our Disunion, or how you can financially partner with us today, please visit us at truthexchange.com. My name is Mary Weller, and I've worked on and off with Truth Exchange for nearly 13 years now. I want to thank Dr. Jones and the staff and board members of this ministry for inviting me to talk about the topic of gender, our culture, and the gospel with you today. I confess, as I start to read this talk out loud to all of you, my hands are starting to sweat. (laughs) There are a lot of reasons for this, but I feel that it's important for me to share two of them right up front. The first is that I stand as a speaker among a panel of scholars and theologians who have dedicated their whole lives to the serious study, sharing, and defense of God's Word. To add my voice to theirs seems almost comical at times. I don't say this with a sense of false humility whatsoever. I think it's a practical and an important acknowledgement on my part. I'm not a theologian. I'm not classically trained in anything, really. I am simply a wife and the mother of a blended family of kids who's doing her level best most days to remember how to reduce fractions. (laughs) However, I have spent over a decade in the wonderful company of Dr. Jones. I'm glad you're here his wife Rebecca, and their stellar board members, and many of the men and women who support the work of this ministry with their incredible talents. And because of this, I've begun to view every aspect of the world around me through the particular lens that Dr. Jones refers to as twoism. That is, to try to think through every issue with the foundational knowledge that all of reality falls into just two categories, either creator God or creation. There's nothing in between. It's only when we have these two categories correctly set up in our minds, I think, that everything else comes to right in our perspectives. I believe with all my heart that God's word is truth and that through it and through living in the world he designed, we can know him better and share the good news of the gospel more effectively in a culture that needs him so badly. But yes, to stand here in this company is intimidating. I've tried very much to honor the truth and to be accurate in my thinking and what I have to share with you today, and I continue to pray for God's help in this. The second reason I'm in a literal sweat right now (laughs) is that I've been asked to speak about something that's so weighty and so conflicted right now in our culture, gender. I'm a woman who does not like to make waves. I like to make friends. I like to be kind. Um, I like to make peace with people. I don't like to offend, and I don't like to cause conflict. However, I'm also a very stubborn and a very hard-headed woman. And some of the greatest love that I've ever been shown in my entire life has been from my parents, from my brothers, from my husband, from my friends, my pastor, and my elders, who have told me truths I did not want to hear, and who are willing to cause me pain when they believed that what I needed to hear was loving truth that was in conflict with my wrong ideas and my wrong decisions. I've not always reacted well at those times, not at all. (laughs) But in hindsight, I can say that I'm thankful for each time that it's been done, and I know how God has used that love and that truth to shape and to hone me. The proverb, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy, has proven to be eminently true in my life. And because of this, I find myself in a position where I have felt compelled to speak biblical truth to something that I fear will offend people. But my hope is that the goodness of the truth will stand here and be seen as love, even if it causes pain to some of you who are listening to this talk. 
My hope is that this truth will remind us of the beauty of God's design and plan, and also expose some of the less talked about and widespread damage that's being done in the name of LGBTQ activism, especially amongst our children. Please know that my prayer has been, is, and will be, as this talk goes out, that God would use his truth to touch those who are hurting, those who are confused, those who are concerned for a loved one who's struggling with gender dysphoria or confusion, those who are questioning their own identities or struggling in any other way themselves, that God's truth and love would help and give you hope. I've made certain choices throughout this talk about how to refer to people whose lives and stories appear here. Throughout, if someone has changed their name, I use the name they prefer, whether it's a masculine or a feminine one. It is, after all, possible to change your name. However, in the pronouns I've used, I've stuck predominantly with those that apply to the person's genetic gender. You cannot change a person's gender. I'm not doing this out of disrespect, though some of you may perceive it that way from me. I've done it because I believe it is speech representing scientific and theological truth. And while we are never to speak the truth without love, I also believe that it's difficult to speak real love without telling the truth. There are a lot of opinions about how to handle things like this, even within our churches, and I've tried to make mine carefully. Recently, as I prepared for this conference, I decided to Google the phrase, am I trans? And in less than a second, I was informed that my search had returned 913 million results. I also noticed as I typed in my search question that the little tool uh, suggested that I take an am I trans quiz. So I took three of them. <clears throat> Based on countless sources, the idea of questioning one's gender is especially prevalent amongst teen girls right now. So I tried to remember who I was when I was a 13-year-old girl going through puberty, and I answered each question to the quizzes as honestly as I possibly could given my memories of myself at that time. These are the results that I got. For my first quiz, 10 questions. I got the result. It is very likely that you are transgendered. I'd like to warn you that although the first few months of realizing and accepting that you're transgender are often warm and nice, after a while the feeling wears off and the dread sets back in. Be careful. Don't make any rash decisions. Remember, although it's very unlikely you may not be transgender after all, you don't know much about trans issues. So learn, 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 and then come to a conclusion. Good luck. <laughs> Quiz number two, again, 10 questions. Result, for 50%, you surely are. Ready for your result? You are bi-gender. Since my opinion obviously isn't professional, you should probably look into this on your own or with a psychiatrist, if you were taking this quiz seriously, that is. If you were just taking this quiz for the heck of it, I hope you had fun. Quiz number three, more serious this time, 67 questions called the C-O-G-I-A-T-I, <laughs> the Combined Gender Identity and Transsexual Inventory, the Female to Male Edition. Result, you are a serious trans transgender or gender queer person. Really? I mean, if I were accurate in my remembrance of myself during adolescence and could transport that girl to the here and now, would people think that I was hiding some type of gender misidentification? 
If I went to a counselor with all the insecurities, discomfort, awkwardness, social anxiety, and emotional upheaval that I felt at that age, and even my occasional attempts at self-harm up to attempting suicide, would a well-meaning professional have suggested that I take a quiz to find out if perhaps I was experiencing gender confusion rather than dealing with the normal, everyday difficulties that come with female puberty? I'm not asking this lightly. You can find any number of gender therapists and trans activists, social media influencers who will tell you that if you are even asking yourself questions about how wildly uncomfortable you feel in your own body, you're more than likely somewhere on the transgender spectrum. Some of them may sound glib, but just as often in my research, what I found was that many of them seemed extremely compassionate and caring, just what a distressed and secure teenage girl is looking for. It's just that the conclusions they're coming to, according to a Christian worldview, and the basic concepts of medical science, they just aren't true. Not by any stretch of the imagination. As I speak to you about this, I think of my awkward, longing to fit, already lying to seem more interesting and make friends, almost six foot tall at 15 year old self. Shall we add braces and headgear so that you get the whole picture of what I was dealing with at the time? And I think of the things that I and my friends looked to at the time to find meaning, a sense of belonging, an escape from the uncertain pressures of social life back then. Some of my friends had eating disorders. Some of them flirted with drugs. Some of us threw ourselves headlong into youth groups and religion, and no matter which direction we went, many of us felt like misfits or freaks. That even though we weren't necessarily totally dishonest about who we were, we were certainly all faking a lot of it a lot of the time while we figured ourselves out. I consider how easily I could have been drawn into the exciting celebratory depictions of so much of what you find online about the trans and gender fluid journeys of trans activists and influencers on social media today. They are begging to be watched. I think of my 10 year old daughter who came to me recently very upset. She was actually in tears because during Pride Month, she had connected the fact that our beliefs as a Christian family and the messages she was hearing during commercials on TV, during cartoons, and in conversations with her friends on the playground might meant that she was the bearer of labels like hater and bigot and transphobe. She tearfully assured me that she didn't hate anyone. In fact, she loved people. She believed that that's what God would have her do. So why did people think that someone with her beliefs might be a hater? What if she just didn't identify with the things that they, they did? Her deep upset at this left me shocked and struggling to find words that spoke truth to her and also offered a kind of love that she could share. I think of my stepdaughter who was pulled aside by a teacher recently and asked to honor a fellow student's request to be referred to by new pronouns. My daughter likes and respects this student very much and wants badly to be as kind as possible, but she also feels that she's been asked to speak something that's not true. She is willing, but she's uncomfortable. There's something that just doesn't sit right with her. There's something that causes her to wonder whether she's being a good friend by going along with things in this way. I think of my son and my stepson who have several friends who fall at various places on the spectrum of gender identity and sexual preference used in common terms today. They love these friends. We've prayed for these friends in our family. And they also don't feel that they can lend unqualified support to some of the choices that these friends are making or statements that their friends have made on social media. They want to be good friends, but how? 
I think that there are families all over the world right now, like mine, who are feeling the effects of the newest stage of the sexual revolution acutely, both on a personal level, a societal level, and a political level. Though many of us are alarmed within our own families about what is happening, we've been told not to speak. We've been told that to speak is violence, that any contrary speech will cause harm. Um, but my friends, the widespread damage in the wake of this movement is very real, very real, and speak we must. You may feel unconvinced. You may be wondering how widespread this really could be. I need to say as we go into this that some of the things I'll be describing here may be pretty upsetting to some of you. I found myself upset <clears throat> as I researched and read for this talk. I've tried to give examples that are forthright and descriptive, but I've also tried to be considerate in what I share here. However, I would ask this of you. Please don't turn away from what's going on. I think it's truly important to understand the real and often permanent damage that people are experiencing as a result of this gender confusion. In addition, <clears throat> when researching LGBTQ stances, it's stunning to find how many varying options and ideas exist and how many real issues we face. There's education. There are safe spaces for women that are being invaded. Biological men are competing in women's sports. There are religious liberty issues that we have to face. There are legislation is issues with which we have to contend. I look forward to addressing many of these issues in greater length in future episodes of the Truth Exchange podcast. But what I provide here is merely an overview of the issues we face as believers. I focus strongly on the world's view of gender versus God's view of gender first. We who seek to love well the people God has placed around us need to be well grounded in this. That being said, here we go. <clears throat> Abigail Schreier is the author of a book called Irreversible Damage, The Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters. In this first section of my talk, I use her book heavily as a guide for good resources and a map for the questions I wanted to ask. It's a book that many are using as the primary resource for thorough, compassionate investigation into the world of transgenderism and its effects, especially on our young people. She does not write from a Christian perspective, so some of her conclusions are different from mine, but she is reasonable. <clears throat> she's deep, she's intelligent, she's thorough, and she's compassionate. I first heard of her on a podcast where Ms. Schreier was being interviewed because Target had made the decision to ban her book due to allegations of transphobia. As I listened to her describe the reason for this and some of the contents of her investigation and writing, however, it was clear that Ms. Schreier was not a transphobe, not anything close to it. She didn't hate or despise the people about whom she wrote. Rather, I heard a woman speaking who had compassion for those who are living through the effects of what can only be termed a current craze in our culture for the fluidity of gender identity and the insistence that a person is whatever gender they say they are and anyone who loves them will support and encourage and cheer as they pursue finding their true selves. And she offers the statistics to back this up. Schreier sums up the breadth and the depth of this craze by describing the mind-blowing statistical changes in the frequency, demographic, and behavior of those who used to identify as having gender identity disorder, say, <clears throat> a decade or so ago, now termed gender dysphoria, and those who do now. I quote, Gender dysphoria typically begins in early childhood, ages two to four, though it may grow more severe in adolescence. But in most cases, nearly 70%, childhood gender dysphoria resolves itself. 
Historically, it afflicted a tiny sliver of the population, roughly one one-hundredth of a percent, and it was almost found exclusively in boys. Before 2012, in fact, there was no scientific literature on girls ages 11 to 21 ever having gender dysphoria at all. Consider then, given that overview from Ms. Schreier, the following, <clears throat> a headline from Sweden. The number of cases of gender dysphoria among teenage girls has increased by almost 1,500% since 2008. The article goes on. It is common for people with gender dysphoria to have several psychiatric diagnoses. The National Board of Health and Welfare has mapped how the number of people diagnosed with gender dysphoria has developed. The authority notes that the increase seen over the past 10 years mainly applies to children and young adults, and in particular to those registered as, gr in, as girls at birth, but also in other age groups, both among children and young adults, boys and girls, young men and young, young women, the increase is marked. A headline from the United Kingdom. Equalities Minister Penny Mordaunt has ordered officials to discover the reason why the number of girls being referred for transition treatment has increased by 4,415%. A headline from Canada. Children's clinics across the country are seeing exponential growth in demand for treatment from teens who don't identify as the sex with which they were born. Dr. Stephen Feeder, the co-director of the Gender Diversity Clinic at CHEO, a children's hospital in Ottawa, Canada, said a decade ago the pediatric hospital saw one or two patients a year who wanted to change their gender or had questions about their gender identity. Last year, 189 patients were referred to the clinic. That's an increase of about 8,900%. I found it surprisingly hard to find equivalent statistics from reliable sources in the United States. However, given the flood of responses Ms. Schreier received from parents whose children had suddenly begun to identify as something other than their genetic gender, and given articles like one in Psychology Today which states, as attested by current controversies, rates of transgender identity appear to be on the rise, particularly among young people. I believe it is safe for us to say that the case is the same for adolescents in the United States, amongst girls especially. The article goes on. Increased social acceptance of a previously stigmatized condition likely plays a role in this process, but other findings are clearly puzzling. Transgender identity is now reported among, reported among young natal females at rates that clearly exceed all known statistics to date. Though many researchers profess a desire to look into the reasons for this uptick in trans identification, it seems clear to me that several factors are at play, backed up in part by another article in Psychology Today about a study done by Lisa Littman of Brown University, who is looking at what she termed rapid onset gender dysphoria, ROGD which seemed especially prevalent amongst adolescent girls. I'd like to note here that Littman's study was retracted by Brown University several days after it was published, not because it was flawed or inaccurate, but because of the intense backlash that she received from trans activists. Regardless, in this study, Dr. Littman surveyed 250 families whose daughters had experienced rapid onset gender dysphoria. First, many of the girls who had displayed ROGD had been exposed to one or more peers who had come out as transgender recently within their friend groups. 63.5% of children experiencing ROGD had increased consumption of social media markedly directly before their coming out.
And though typical diagnosis of gender dysphoria would require that children would show signs of gender dysphoria well before puberty, Dr. Littman's survey found that a full 80% of parents said that this was not the case in the, their dysphoric teens. Consider Ms. Schreier's summation of the interviews and research she had done up to and including looking at social norms like grades the girls received, contact with old friends prior to trans identification, financial stability, and lost or strained contact with family members. I quote, the phenomenon sweeping teenage girls today represents internet gurus, a pledge taken with girlfriends, hands and breath held, eyes squeezed shut. For these girls, trans identification offers freedom from anxiety's relentless pursuit. It satisfies the deepest need for acceptance, the thrill of transgression, the seductive lilt of belonging. This is the story of the American family, decent, loving, hardworking and kind. It wants to do the right thing, but it finds itself set in a society that increasingly regards parents as obstacles, bigots, and dupes. I would add that anyone who would speak against the prevailing gender narrative right now is viewed that way. Schreier goes on, we cheer as teenage girls with no history of dysphoria steep themselves in a radical gender ideology taught in school or found on the internet. Peers and therapists and teachers and internet heroes egg these girls on. But here, the cost of so much youthful indiscretion is not just a piercing or a tattoo. It's closer to a full pound of flesh. A pound of flesh, you might ask? Is she being hyperbolic? I'd say no. In defense of my answer, I bring you to an interview with Scott Nugent, conducted by Madeline Kearns for The Federalist. Scott is a 47-year-old transgender man. This means that he was born as a woman and now identifies as a man. I'll share many of Scott's thoughts with you at different points here, and she'll reappear later on. Fairly early in the interview, Kearns repeats to Nugent a list of the medical procedures and complications that she's endured in an effort to accomplish full sex change from female to male. These claims have been backed up with medical records, pictures, and other documentation. Nugent has had seven surgeries, a pulmonary embolism, an induced heart, heart attack from stress, sepsis, a 17-month recurring infection, 16 rounds of antibiotics, three weeks of daily IV antibiotics, complete hair loss, loss of arm function, arm reconstructive surgery, permanent lung and heart damage, bladder damage, insomnia, hallucinations, hair growth on the inside of her urethra, post-traumatic stress disorder, $1 million in medical expenses, she's lost her home, she's lost her car, She's lost her job. She's lost her career. She's had marital breakdown. She was temporarily unable to look after her children at one point. And so far, she's unable to sue the surgeon responsible in part because there is no baseline of care for transgender patients. After hearing this litany during her interview, Scott adds, yeah, and I passed out multiple times from pain. Granted, Nugent is an adult and according to most standards had more capacity to make the decisions she did to engage in these treatments and surgeries than an adolescent would. But such procedures are not relegated to adults and many trans activists will tell parents and the public adamantly that each of these treatments, if desired by gender dysphoric children, adolescent or adults, should be administered and affirmed for fear of calming harm to the dysphoric individual. Harm that could be anything from additional mental distress up to and very likely including suicide. 
I'd like to take a moment to state that suicide rates among people suffering from gender dysphoria are extremely high compared to the general population, as are the rates of comorbid mental health issues and things like history of abuse and trauma. Their pain, it's very, very real. However, the data are extremely unreliable when it comes to showing that gender transition therapies do anything to alleviate sui suicidal ideation. In fact, Though there are few long-term studies available, the evidence seems to show that sex reassignment surgery, such as it is, does not alleviate suicidal ideation. The longest-term study of 324 sex reassigned persons in Sweden concluded, persons with transsexualism after sex reassignment have considerably higher risks for mortality, suicidal behavior, and psychiatric morbidity than the general population. Our findings suggest that sex reassignment, although alleviating gender dysphoria, may not suffice as treatment for transsexualism and should inspire improved psychiatric and somatic care after sex reassignment for this patient group. Another study from the notorious Taverstock Clinic in the United Kingdom showed that the administration of puberty blockers to adolescent girls had no positive impact whatsoever on gender dysphoria. However, in the name of helping those with gender dysphoria, the following are procedures and, quote, treatments available to transgender identifying youth, in some instances, especially in the state of California, without the consent or knowledge of their parents. First, the administration of puberty blockers to children ranging in ages from 8 to 13, the range when most healthy human beings begin that transition into puberty in order to stall puberty. Gender therapists and advocates of this measure will claim that children should not be forced to go through the puberty of the wrong gender and offer this as a pause button. Often, a drug called Lupron, or ones like it are used. This is off-label use. This is the same type of drug that used to be used on, to chemically castrate sex offenders. It's not approved for use in halting normal puberty in anyone. There are tens of thousands of complaints registered with the FDA about the effects of this drug, more than half of which are considered serious. And there are multiple active lawsuits about its side effects as well. If you'll recall that typically gender dysphoria with no intervention revolves itself about 70% of the time according to Schreier and 80 to 95% of the time according to another article I found, it should stand out starkly to you that children treated with puberty blockers in one medical um, trial proceeded to cross-sex hormone treatment 100% of the time. Don't miss the contrast here. Anywhere from 70 to 95% of children desist from transgender ideation when there is no intervention. But a full 100% of children in that study who were given puberty blockers continued on to medical transition. None of them found resolution. This is not a mere neutral pause button as part of watchful waiting with gender dysphoric children. In addition, use of puberty blockers in children can result in bone density loss, permanent effect of pituitary function, the atrophy of reproductive organs leading to infertility, potential atrophy of genitals leading to lifelong sexual dysfunction, adverse effects on neurological development, and etc. And many of these effects are irreversible. Administration of cross-sex hormones, such as testosterone for female to male transition and estrogen and sometimes progesterone for male to female transition is also widely available. Many who start on these hormone therapies describe feelings of euphoria and lessening of depression, though anecdotally these effects do seem to wear off.
Along with the desired bodily changes these hormones cause, redistribution of fat on the body, growth or thinning of hair on chests and legs, the lowering of voices in women taking testosterone. There are also undesirable effects as well, including vaginal atrophy, dryness, cracking, and recession of the vagina into the body, increased risk of heart attack in women taking testosterone. They're five times higher than that of women, 2.5 times higher than that of genetic men. There are also emotional effects, aggression, tearfulness, loss of empathy in women who seek to transition to male, etc. I watched many video testimonials of detransitioners, women who had begun testosterone treatment and later desisted, and now still had the deep voices of men. Many of them referred to the things that they wished they had been told before starting these treatments. The stories vary. I will not repeat the details of all of them out of respect here, but I spent much time in tears as I listened to the stories of these women. Chest binding is also widespread. Girls tightly bind their breasts in order to get the flat appearance of a man. This is hugely popular among younger girls who identify as trans. Binding can permanently cause tissue damage. It can be done too tightly and actually fracture ribs, and it can cause all kinds of upper abdominal pain. I took some time to Google, how can I get a chest binder without my parents knowing? In addition to many videos on how to bind and where to get binders, I also found that there is an organization called Chest Binder Donations, where people give donations to pay for the cost and shipping of these chest binders in unmarked envelopes to trans people in need. Next is top surgery. Double mastectomy on girls and women with healthy breast tissue. In addition to the removal of healthy breasts being medically dubious, according to the standards of many medical practitioners when talking to adults, there are now taxpayer studies that have been done where girls as young as 13 years old have undergone double mastectomies at the cost of taxpayer dollars in Los Angeles. I watched one Dr. Joanna Olson Kennedy, an advocate for transgender medical treatment in adolescence, speaking to a room full of medical professionals on video. After explaining that adolescents are perfectly capable of making advanced decisions, she says flippantly. And here's the other thing about chest surgery. If you want your breasts back at a later point in your life, you can just go out and get them. In response to this idea, a prominent plastic surgeon that Abigail Schreier interviewed said that this was like removing a, delicate, or that de removing a delicately designed breast with milk glands, ducts, and nuanced construction being replaced with fake breasts was like him doing surgery on a brown-eyed patient who wanted blue eyes. He said he could certainly gouge the real brown eye out and replace it with a blue fake eye, leaving his patient without the function of a healthy organ, and that no one would think that he had done something right or good. There are also bottom surgeries. This entails the penis-like or vagina-like constructions performed on men and women who are seeking to fully transition. For females, this often involves taking large skin grafts from the forearm most, most of the time. Um, and this is referred to as sleeve surgery online. Thankfully, most men and women who identify as transgender do not desire to go through these surgeries or even attempt to, but they are available. I won't go into all the details of phalloplasty, um, but I tend to want to know things for myself, so I looked at quite a few of those details online. And as I combed back through my notes from finding out about what these procedures entailed in articles and book margins, I found that I had written the same thing repeatedly throughout. Danger. Danger. This is mutilation. I blushed a little at myself. <laughs> um, 
I sounded so melodramatic when I went back and saw that with my purple felt tip scrawls. But then I had another one of my notes. We bear responsibility if we don't speak out about this. This note to myself was wrapped around the side of an interview of someone named Blake conducted in Ms. Schreier's book. I realized as I reread the interview that I was in fact reading another recounting of Scott's story whose name had been changed there. I went back to the interview with Scott that I referenced earlier and I think her thoughts make my reactions seem much less melodramatic. Referring to the political and cultural push to assist and facilitate child transition, Scott said, this is really hard for me because I've done it. I've transitioned as far as is medically possible. I deal with people who have done it. I've known a couple of kids who became adults and killed themselves, realizing only after transition that they were in the wrong body. I've got three kids who are at the age where it's legal and possible to medically transition in the United States. Transge transgenderism, medical transitioning, it's plastic surgery. It creates an illusion. If you go into it thinking that it changes anything, you come out at the end with the only long-term study that tells us the highest suicidal ideation is seven to 10 years after medical transition. Why do you think that is? Because you have to face reality at some time. So we're taking children that suffer from mental illness, that suffer from a dysphoria, that don't fit in, and we're clumping them into a group of people that are listed like superheroes right now for medically transitioning. The level of emotional pain so clearly present in so many of Scott's words is representative, I believe, of a large part of the transgender experience that trans activists would like for us never to see. Mainstream media depictions of the trans movement are all almost entirely positive in our culture. And to speak out with any type of concern or to question the validity of science and philosophies behind many of their claims in even the smallest way is to commit, in some cases, social and reputational suicide. Take this example recently in mainstream news. J.K. Rowling, famed author of the Harry Potter series, tweeted in support of a woman named Maya Forstadter. Forstetter, who worked for a think tank against inequality, had stated in 2018, What I'm so surprised at is that smart people I admire who are absolutely pro-science in other areas and champion human rights and women's rights are tying themselves into knots to avoid saying the truth that men cannot change into women because it might hurt men's feelings. After her firing, uh, numerous people tweeted on her behalf, including Rowling, who wrote, Dress however you please. Call yourself whatever you like. Sleep with any consenting adult, adult who'll have you. Live your best life in peace and security. But force women out of their jobs for stating that sex is real? And the mob woke. In 2021, Rowling is still lambasted as a transphobe and anti-trans. She's reiterated time and again her love for people in the trans community. But because of her additional insistence that one cannot ignore biology, there are many who will not and never will forgive her. If, uh, another famous tweet of hers read, if sex isn't real, then there's no same-sex attraction. If sex isn't real, the lived reality of women globally is erased. I know and love trans people, but erasing the concept of sex removes the ability of many to meaningfully discuss their lives. It isn't hate to speak the truth, she wrote. 
the idea that women like me who've been empathetic to trans people for decades, feeling kinship because they're vulnerable in the same way as women, i.e. to male violence, hate trans people because they think sex is real and has lived consequences, this is a nonsense. I recognize that the love Ms. Rowling expresses, and her encouragement even, of people to live free of any of the confines that we believe to be good, protective, and healthy as Christians, puts us in some conflict with her stated views. But see some of the truths that she speaks, and the care that she professes, and hang on to that for later consideration. I could spend hours going over the seemingly benign statements that our culture's celebrities have made about gender ideology and have caused them to fall from grace. <clears throat> but between this and Abigail Schreier's own cancellation, as well as news headlines we all see every single day, I'm not sure that I really need to delve into it too, too much deeply into that aspect of our gender issues for this discussion. What I would like to let you know about, however, is a type of cancellation that I find even more disturbing, and that is the cancellation of the stories of people who are detransitioners, a name used to describe those who have walked down the road of attempting to trans transition genders, only to find that they have believed lies and done incredible damage to themselves and, for many, to their closest and most important relationships at the same time. The vitriol, the disgust, the rage thrown at this group of people who have already been through so much is simply heartbreaking. The most famous of these, perhaps, because he has spoken so bravely for so long is Walt Hare. Walt, who went through transition and lived presenting as a woman for eight years, has been a loud and often lone voice, telling his experiences and the experiences of many who have reached out to him over the years as they've experienced regret after beginning transition procedures. Listen to the laden language of this introduction to Walt by Media Matters in 2015 after some media outlets interviewed Walt about Caitlyn Jenner's cover release on Vanity Fair. In an article titled, What the Media Should Know About Walt Hare and Transition Regrets, the first paragraph reads, a popular right-wing activist with extreme and discredited views about LGBT people is making the media rounds to talk about Caitlyn Jenner, peddling the myth that many trans transgender people end up regretting their transitioning. I'd encourage you to look Walt up, read his story, or listen to him tell it. And I'd read through some of the stories he has shared of people who have reached out to him in their own despair and regret. He shares many of these stories as a writer for The Federalist, and while Media Matters would like us to believe that the stories of regret that Walt shares are false, few, or far and in between, I would suggest that the 17,000 plus members of the subreddit, a message board, titled Detransitioners, tells a different tale. You must profess to be a detransitioner or consider detransition to become a member there. A different tale is also told by the myriad detransition videos that can be found, with extreme caution advised, where men and women tell the stories of their attempts to transition from male to female or female to male and their journeys back. Listen to women with deep, masculine voices express their regret, sadness, and wonder at some of the choices that they made, the breasts they had removed the giant healing scars on their arms from attempted phalloplasty, the relationships they've lost, the children that they will never be able to bear. And as you listen, remember that each face you see and each voice you hear is that of a man or a woman created in the image of the living God. They are valuable. They are worthy of our care and prayers. They are humans in need of real hope, just like all of us. 
This is why we have to start speaking. Brothers and sisters, I am convinced that we bear responsibility before the Lord and in our own hearts if we do not start to speak up about all of this with loving, unwavering, non-politically correct truth. So, where do we start? <laughs> it is amazing how complicated it seems to respond to all of this when we come at it from the perspective of the world and the culture. I don't care to tell you how many false starts I made with this talk once I'd finished my research and began to write. I began time and time again trying to take on every definition of gender and sexuality I found, trying to read through papers like Doing Gender uh, and comb through statements of second and third wave feminists to find the perfect place to start. And finally it dawned on me, as Christians, where must we always start? We start with what God says. We start at the beginning with one and two, the Creator and what He created. Dr. Jones, I hope that makes you proud. <laughs> God created them male and female in His image. The thing is, you cannot untrue truth. And it is amazing how strong truth is. I often tell my kids that they don't have to be afraid of testing truth because if it really is true, it's going to stand up to anything that you throw at it. This is hard, I think, for especially kids to recognize right now because they've grown up in a culture where we so often speak about our truths, as though truth changes based on our experiences and perspectives, as though it were subjective based on our thoughts and feelings rather than objective simply because it is. The truth is, God our Creator is sing singularly Lord over all, and as such, what He created is real, and it is true. We can't unthink it. We can't unengineer it. We cannot philosophize it out of existence, try as we might. No redefining vocabulary, no mental illness, no trauma, and no fear can make the truth untrue. When we seek to change truth, to live according to something other than the truth, we do ourselves and others incredible damage no matter how lovingly we intended it in the first place. The Bible is clear, and we must be cautious that we are not to speak truth without love. But as I said before, in working on this project, I've begun to realize that the opposite is also true. It is impossible to speak love without truth and not reap horrible, horrible consequences. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Paul says in Romans 1, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. In the same interview from which I've been quoting extensively already, I was blown away by some of the true things that Scott had to say after so many surgeries, so many hormone treatments, having done so much to present as a in the world as a man. Listen to this in the context of what I just read to you from Romans 1. Here's the thing. You can't transition genders. You are who you are biologically. If I die and you bury me in the dirt and dig up my bones a hundred years later, they're going to say, huh, that was a female. It doesn't change. We are gendered to the very core of our beings. We, as men and women created in the image of a holy God, are one of the clearest pictures that God has given the world of who He is. This is what God called very good. This is what humanity looked like before the fall. 
God, the only creator, made man and woman in his image equal in value and protected within the loving structure of complementary hierarchy, entailing the headship of a man who cherished woman as the absolute necessary complement and completion to himself, and a woman who willingly submitted in help and honor to the man for and from whom she was made by God. Paul was writing to a church that was living after the fall, when sin had entered into the world, but his proclamation that what could be known about God was plain to them through the things that have been made still stood. Sin did not alter the nature of the created order, though it did change our relationship to it and to each other, particularly in the roles that men and women hold, and this has created immense suffering. During the time that Paul wrote to Rome, a surprising amount of the sexual and gender norms of the culture were similar to the norms of our culture today. You can read the historical documentation of this in Dr. Jones's books, One or Two, Seeing a World of Difference, and The God of Sex. I'll not go into all of these details here, but I will say that Paul was writing these things to a culture whose norms had some deep parallels to our own culture now. And he went on to say, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. They exchanged the truth about God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. I return to Scott again, who makes it clear that growing up, girls were not valued in her family the way that boys were. She was athletic and talented. She describes breaking down and bawling her eyes out as she finally attempted to explain the why of everything that she'd chosen to do to her body and life in the name of gender reassignment. I realized there are so many reasons why I did this. The family that I come from is a very male-dominated family and has produced a lot of male athletes. And I saw that at a very young age, how this male-dominant personality caused problems in my childhood everywhere. Like, Kelly, you need to do it like this, this way. Kelly, you need to do it this way. And I started to think how much easier my life would have been if I had just been born a male. I started to look at the structures of my life and the struggles of my life and realized that if I had swapped chromosomes in my mother's stomach, I would have been the quintessential male. I would have been a professional athlete. I would have been a college star. I would have been everything. I knew that and because I wasn't, I struggled with it. Scott goes on to describe additional pain and heartbreak and finally says, I reflected on my childhood stuff and I started to think, Maybe there was something wrong with me. Maybe I was born in the wrong body. Pressed by the interviewer whether Scott thought she would actually literally change sex, Scott responded, yeah, they actually tell you that. In other words, Scott believed lies. And who of us hasn't done that? I wanna make it clear how I feel about Scott and why I keep returning to this one story. Though I've never suffered with gender confusion, dare I say that all three of my quizzes were wrong, <laughs> I have suffered the consequences of all kinds of sexual and gender-based sin, both at my own hands and at the hands of others. I have, in my own ways, gone out into this world, away from the very good structures that God has designed, and I have caused incredible damage. When I consider myself before Christ broke into my world and saved me, I see so much that makes me ache with hurt and empathy for all of Scott's pain. I have grown in whatever way I can through this research to love Scott, even though I've never met her. 
to long for Scott's life to be profoundly changed, for Scott to be released from her suffering. I wonder things like, what if Scott had had parents more like mine, who valued me as a girl even though I was the rough and tumble muddy kind, who was far more into sports than either of her brothers ever were? I wonder what Scott's self-perception would have been like had someone lovingly pushed back against the idea that if she had just been born a boy, everything would have been different and better. I wonder what Scott's life would have been like if beginning to believe that there could be a mismatch between her inner self and her body, someone had lovingly insisted on the truth that Scott already knows herself now. You can't change genders. And then what if that person had walked sympathetically and faithfully as a friend through Scott's troubles and hurts, speaking creational and foundational truth even when it was uncomfortable or might cause a falling out between them and remained faithful? I wonder, what if there hadn't been a whole system of media and doctors and therapists and activists speaking almost completely unchallenged in affirmation of Scott's deepest suspicions and misunderstandings about the reality of the world and her place in it with her very female body? I don't know. I don't know how it would have turned out any more surely than Scott could know that if she'd been born a boy, she would have been everything and that she was incapable of that as a woman. In her excellent book, Radical Womanhood, Feminine Faith in a Feminist World, Carolyn McCauley makes a very profound set of statements. I'm going to give them to you slightly out of order from the way she did in the book, but I think I'm not changing the spirit of what she said. It's just that I think you can get more clearly at what I'm trying to see this way. Ms. McCauley writes, as a movement, feminism arose because women were being sinned against. I think that's a fair judgment. But feminism also arose because women were sinning in response. That's a classic human problem. Sinners tend to sin in response to being sinned against. Prior to this clear and needful truth, Ms. McCauley wondered, but for me and many women in this present age, the definition, practices, and contours of feminists are where the battles rage. What does it mean to be a woman and not a man? What is the significance of our ability to bear children? How should we handle our sexuality? Should we structure our careers just like men do? What's the purpose of being a wife? Feminism has profoundly altered our culture's concept of what it means to be a woman. To my mind, as a woman reading this statement in 2021, the questions Ms. McCauley is considering sound almost outdated. Certainly, those of us who are seeking to live out our lives as God-honoring women still struggle with them. But what Ms. McCauley saw coming is now here. Feminism and the addition of transgender ideology has profoundly altered what our culture's concept of what it means to be a woman, indeed, what it means to be a man even is. We have attempted to erase any distinctions between men and women altogether, and in doing so, we've tried to undo what God made real down to the gendered center of every cell of every single body. Stuck within the confines of what is real, suffering the extreme and painful consequences of our sin and wanting desperately to escape that pain while maintaining our ideas that we are free from the bonds of a God who wants to tell us who we are and what we are. We have thrashed through the centuries in a topsy-turvy mess of hearts and souls sick with sin, running from a God who has every good answer to our every doubt, fear, and question. We have tried to undo what is real, spoken into being by the power of the Word. And because we are not God, 
and our words cannot change reality, we've continued to attempt to do it with the most modern tools available to us, hormone therapies, puberty blockers, scalpels, speech codes, name changes, pronoun changes, law changes, and the deafening cancellation of anyone who asks questions or say otherwise. The enmity of the serpent for the woman and her offspring has become a full-scale war, and there is the carnage of broken hearts and scarred bodies all around us right now to prove it. Somehow, Christians, we must in greater and greater numbers choose to open our mouths and speak truth to the lie that is harming and deceiving so many today. We must acknowledge the hurt and the confusion and the fear that so many suffer from because of the strength of the deception that we have as a culture imbibed so deeply. We must speak the truth with profound, empathetic, and sincere love. Wayne Grudem sets a beautiful tone in something he wrote about God's design for men and women, and I'd like to quote it at length here, and then add a couple of thoughts of my own, because he was writing before a lot of these questions that we're asking about gender were so prominent in our culture. But listen to this. The Bible thus corrects the errors of male dominance and male superiority that have come as a result of sin and that have been seen in nearly all cultures in the history of the world. Wherever men are thought to be better than women, wherever husbands act as selfish dictators, wherever wives are forbidden to have their own jobs outside the home or to vote or to own property or to be educated, wherever women are treated as inferior, wherever there is abuse or violence against women or rape or female infanticide or polygamy or harems. The biblical truth of equality in the image of God is being denied. To all societies and cultures where these things occur, we must proclaim that the very first page of God's word bears a fundamental and irrefutable witness against these evils. Yet we can say more. If men and women are equally in the image of God, then we are equally important and equally valuable to God. We have equal worth before Him for all eternity, for this is how we were created. This truth should exclude all our feelings of pride or inferiority and should exclude any idea that one sex is better or worse than the other. If God thinks us to be equal in value, then that settles forever the question of personal worth, for God's evaluation is the true standard of personal value for all eternity. Isn't that beautiful? God created us before the foundations of the world as female and male, and no matter the abuse, the mental illness, the oppression or hurt that has made so many in our society want to change that fundamental aspect of themselves, we are eternally valuable as we were made to the God of the universe. Harkening back to Scott's insistence that if her bones were dug up 100 years from now, they would be female bones, I wonder, what if Scott knew that the God of the universe made that unchangeable femaleness on purpose and found it very good? What if Scott knew that all the inferiority and lesser than pain that had been placed on her, that that was what was wrong and not her body? Who will tell the Scots of the world this truth if we do not? This will sound like terrible foolishness in the world's ears, but for those who are lost and the Lord is calling, this is life-changing beauty and truth. And how can the world hear, hear it? How can the suffering hear it? How can the confused hear it if we do not love them enough to speak? It will be scary. I'm scared today. I fully expect that if this talk gets out to any number of people besides this conference, that I will be derided, scorned, and probably hated. But if this is the truth, are not these fellow image bearers worth the speaking of it? Of course, ultimately, 
Our goal is never to tell anyone simply about the truth of creation or the truth that our sex, our gender, are determined by God. What good is anything that we seek to prove unless it finally leads them to the Creator Himself? Ultimately, our goal is for those around us to see the glory of the one who created us and then who condescended for the sake of those he called his own to take on the flesh of a man like the first Adam he created to fulfill the role that Adam had failed to fulfill. As I considered the extraordinary truth that God took on flesh and dwelt among us, I found myself drawn back to Isaiah's prophecy about the coming of this God-man Jesus. Having spent so much time for this talk thinking about the fall and what happened in the garden, the words of this prophecy of our Messiah leapt out at me. Here was the offspring of the woman who had bruised the serpent's head. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul takes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Who better than this Jesus, through whom all things were made, who loved us to the point of giving himself up to the torture of death on a cross for us? Who better than him to embrace any man or woman, boy or girl, who has felt alien in their skin? and who bear the real scars, emotional and physical, of that battle. There is none better than him. He bears scars too as he calls to them, and we must tell them that truth. I have one final thought to share with you as I close. When I was in my 20s and not walking with the Lord, a person very close to my family who was a believer came to our family for dinner. I had not seen this person for a very long time, and though I loved this person very much, we just didn't really have anything in common, any type of relationship really. As soon as we got far enough into the meal that everyone was seated and the passing and clatter of plates for serving food had dined down, this person pulled out an audio cassette player and locked eyes with me across the family table. I have something for you to listen to, she said. And then she hit play. <laughs> Having attended a revival meeting at her church some weeks before, she had heard a message that she thought of as especially being for me because she knew that I was not living as a Christian. She bought the tape, she called my parents for a visit out of the blue, and she proceeded to play the preacher's hour-long message while I ate in stunned, enraged silence. I do not remember a single word of that sermon, not one. What I do remember <clears throat> is the shame, the embarrassment, and the outrage that I felt at the time. I don't question for even one moment the good intentions and genuine concern that this person felt for me. I can't imagine that bravery it must have taken her to do what she did. I hold no grudge whatsoever, and I'm truly delighted any time I have occasion to see or visit with her. She's a dear sister in Christ, but I can tell you that she did some grave damage to me that night. <laughs> What was done to my heart that evening at the dinner table still leaves me with this sort of sick shock to this day. This experience has nagged at me as I've written this talk and I couldn't figure out why it kept coming to the forefront of my mind, leaving a stubborn pit in my stomach. Then literally today, as I was praying that God would show me how on earth to conclude this talk, I received a series of text messages from one of my children. A friend had excitedly explained in a class that they share about starting on cross-hormone therapy, cross-sex hormone therapy. 
My child wrote me upset and sad and unsure of what to say to this friend. My child knows so much of what I've studied here. She's concerned for this young person that they don't have a close relationship at all. Because she is a compassionate and tender young lady, she immediately felt caught between the pressures of the scientific knowledge that she's learned and the social pressure she feels to avoid causing undue offense or upset. Her heart hurt for this friend, and she just didn't know what to do. Talk about all my theories and proclamations immediately being put to the test in the real world. But what dawned on me as we spoke later that day about my child's friend was this. My experience at the dinner table over 20 years ago informs, I think, what we need to carry in our hearts as we seek to speak the truth in love. Each and every person we meet is a real person with real feelings and relationships and lives. Each one of them is an image bearer. <clears throat> when our family friend brought that tape to our family dinner, whether she knew that she had done it or not, she had singled me out first and foremost as sinner, and she was going to see me saved. While her intentions were anything but wrong, she hadn't taken the time to know me. She knew very likely of my sexual sin. I was living a loud, emotional, in-your-face wreck of a life for the most part. She knew I wasn't going to church through my parents and had outright rejected my Christian faith at the time. But she didn't know anything else about me, really. She didn't know any of the details of my life. She had not approached me as another human being made in the image of a holy God. We had no real relationship that could bear the weight of what it was she was trying to do. So she had approached me as a something else. As something impersonal and it was painful. This was the basis for some of the advice that I gave my daughter today with much prayer. To get to know this person, to ask questions, to find out about this fellow student, the thoughts, the desire to transition, the life, the expectations the student might have. We agreed that right now there was not the kind of relationship between them where it would be appropriate for my child to launch into all of her fears and concerns and the data backing it all up. But there was definitely room to get to know this person, to try to understand, and to let herself be known to this student as considerate and perhaps by the grace of God, a safe resource in the future should the steps this student is taking right now cause regret, unexpected consequences, fear, or concerns. Most especially, together, we will pray for my daughter's friend, that this child would find peace and ultimate comfort in the Savior, Jesus Christ. My husband laughs at me when I tell our kids when I really want them to hear something, look at me, <laughs> pay attention, but that's what I want from you here. I really am almost done. I know this was long, <laughs> but don't miss this part. My hope and prayer for every single person who is uncomfortable in their skin, in agony at the thought that they are in the wrong body, confused about their gender, suffering from their own sin or being sinned against, carrying the wounds of a world so sick with this gender ideology, is that each of them would be brought to a place where they can say these words along with the Psalmist David. Think of them in perspective of all we've talked about today. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet none of them were known. To that good creator God be all the glory. Thank you.